Good morning. As Johnny said, my name is Chris Thompson, and I am the campus pastor here at Grace Bible Church Creekside, and I'm really excited about being with you guys this morning. We're going to be continuing our our series in the book of Acts, and this morning in particular, we're going to be in Acts chapter 4, starting in chapter 4 and then diving into chapter 5. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, and while you're doing so, I want to share a little something about myself. I love stories. Uh, Who doesn't, right? But in particular, I love survival stories. I love those characters, those people that overcome insurmountable odds. And, um, and, And interestingly, this this weekend, the movie Everest came out. Matt and I actually went and saw it on Friday night at the IMAX in 3D. Uh, the theater was even cold, so you felt like you're really there. It was pretty intense. And uh, it's, it's a great story, but what's interesting about the fact that Matt and I went and saw that this weekend is that about 15 years ago, I read one of the accounts by one of the survivors, John Krakauer, who wrote Into Thin Air. I read that book about 15 years ago, and that was one of my first books uh, about a you know, survival situation, and I was hooked. I, I loved it, and, I, and, I, and ever since then, I've been on a steady diet of all kinds of survival stories, mission adventures, escapes from Soviet gulags. I mean, everything is great. It's, uh, it's just it's something I love and, and really enjoy. But uh, one thing about stories that all of us know, whether it's fiction, nonfiction, whatever it is, is that all stories have some key elements, right? All good stories have what's oftentimes we call the setting, the context. And interestingly, whether you're watching it on a movie or reading it in a book, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, the setting is oftentimes described at the beginning of the story as something that's just kind of wonderful. Life is good. Everything's great. Uh, and then enters the conflict, right? Through some sort of antagonist or antagonism. Well, in the case of Everest, the antagonism was the forces of nature and, and uh, just the storm and the intensity of the mountain. But you have this conflict that enters in that oftentimes takes what was a really great situation, just like heaven on earth kind of scenario, and then all of a sudden you hit these depths with this conflict that enters into that story and you're feeling for the characters, and you're, you're gripped by the situation that the conflict is presenting to them. But then, eventually, you hit this resolution. Well, just like every good story, the truth of God's Word also brings to us a narrative that is also true, a narrative of human history that explains to us and shares with us, reveals truly about God and His character in his interaction with his creation, mankind. And we have this setting in the book of Genesis, in the first couple of chapters, we have this heaven-on-earth situation, this scenario that is unbelievable. It's beautiful, but it's not just the aesthetic appeal that is so wonderful and so incredible, but it's the fellowship that God has with his created beings, the fellowship that he has with mankind. And then, of course, we don't get very far into this book, third chapter, and in enters conflict. And it comes in the form of the serpent, that is Satan himself, the enemy of God, the antagonist that we see throughout all of scriptures. He is constantly attacking God's people, 
constantly attacking God's purposes and his plan. But the beauty of it all is that we know how it ends at the end. We know and we, we know that God will claim ultimate victory over Satan, and we know that we will have resolution in the end that is beautiful and wonderful, and we anticipate it, we look forward to it. We even see glimpses of that resolution throughout as well as we see the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So as we talk about story and we see it in the grand narrative, in the grand scheme, let's bring it down to this morning's talk in Acts, in Acts chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 32. We see kind of a, a, a little glimpse. In the account that we're going to read this morning, we see a little glimpse of this, this whole deal where we have setting, we have conflict, and we have some resolution. In just a few passages, I'm sorry, just a few verses. So we're going to start in verse 32, and let's look at uh, what transpires here. And, and we can begin to see and understand the setting as it relates to the conflict and be able to understand the gravity of the conflict in the situation. Let's read. Verse 32 says this. I'm reading from the ESV translation. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So here in this situation, the context is this. This incredible, incredible community, the people of God. And I want us to, to make note of something because in verse 32, it says they were of one heart all who believed. You see, the baseline of this incredible community that was a a generous community, one in which everyone was giving away their things and seeing that, hey, this isn't really mine. This this is for everybody to use. This is is a a common property. They They were selling their possessions, their homes, their real estate, taking the proceeds and distributing it to the community, anybody who had need. But the reality is the baseline for which this kind of incredible, blessed community existed was because of their beliefs. Their beliefs in Jesus Christ as Savior, the one who had redeemed them, the one who was flooding them with grace, and their, their, uh, their, their understanding of who he was was what was driving this heart behind this incredible community that was connected, that was caring for one another, that was meeting each other's needs. It was really like a little slice of heaven on earth. Incredible in the way that they were caring for one another, loving God and loving others. Now, as the story continues, there was an interesting thing that, that Luke does here. Many, many people were selling their homes, selling their land, their possessions, and giving to those who had need. But one person in particular, Luke decides to call out and recognize. And his name was Joseph, but he happened to be known by the apostles, probably pretty well known, because they'd given him a nickname. They called him Barnabas. And Barnabas means son of encouragement. Barnabas' character is 
top-notch. He's a great guy, one that you'd want to hang around because his personality is such that he always sees the glass half full. And he's one of those kind of personalities also that's always going to see the potential in someone. He's going he's to believe in you that you, you just you want to arise to the occasion. You, you just get, it puts wind in your sails. That's the kind of person that Barnabas was. And he gets in on the action as well. He participates in this community in such a way that he too takes some of his property, sells a field that belonged to him, and then he gives the money to the apostles to be distributed, to be given to those who had need. Now, I think it's interesting that Luke decides to, um, to, to give us this, this setting and in particular recognize Barnabas in this setting. Because Barnabas, this is the first time that Luke mentions him, but it won't be the last we're going to see Barnabas again. We're going to see him come to the surface again. And he actually becomes quite an influential member of this community, as he already is. The apostles knew him. They gave him a nickname. But truly, he also becomes an influential member of the church worldwide, as we see in the missionary journeys of Paul later in the book. So I think it's significant that we both recognize that Luke chose to recognize Barnabas and his influence in the community, his, his, uh, his generosity to the community, and how even God is recognizing him here for generations to come to know who Barnabas was and, and where, where kind of some of his story began. That's going to take us into the conflict. Here's what's going to happen. Chapter 5, verse 1, first word, first verse, we have the word but. That conjunction sets up this contrast between this beautiful, committed, generous community of God's people to what's about to happen in this conflict. We've got the good, and now we're about to have the bad and the ugly. It's coming down. Verse 1 of chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge... He kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now let's dive into this for a second because it may not be readily apparent exactly what happened. But truly what this was was a devious deception. Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, recognized, they, they saw how some in the community, many in the community, were, were giving... They're selling their fields. They're selling their possessions. They were taking the proceeds. They were giving them to the apostles to be given to the community. And they notice even Barnabas, potentially, that he's getting this recognition from the community. And so they are, uh, they're, uh, they're, it's interesting that they are uh, probably moved by that. They're kind of interested in that. And what they then conspire together is to take their field, sell it, and then not give all of it, but hold back some of it. In fact, that word kept back in verse 2, that actually is the word for embezzle. So it kind of helps to lend itself to the, the darkness of what they're participating in, what the sin truly is, and that is to steal and lie about it. They are going to present their proceeds, which is only a portion of it, as if it were the whole. And they're going to give it to the apostles. They're going to give it to the, the community. 
And what they're doing here in this devious deception is, is undermining everything that this community stands for. They're undercutting everything that the people of God are about. And truly, if you look at this community, they are a people marked by generosity, by authenticity, by selflessness. If you think about this in the, con- the cultural context of selling a piece of property, this is a bigger deal than just simply cashing out and giving, giving the uh, proceeds to charity. This is a big deal because land meant more than just wealth. Land meant clout. Land meant status. Land meant privilege in a community such as this one. To sell it was to potentially be selling something that you had inherited that had been a part of your family for generations. So it is a big deal to, to, to sell your property. This is a really big deal. Ananias and Sapphira want in on the action. They want in on the recognition but they don't want to go through the pain of giving all. They want to hold back some of it. And essentially what their deed was, their, their sin was, was an act of greed and hypocrisy and selfishness. Completely contrary, completely opposite of what the people of God were all about. And it, completely, it was completely against the message of God, the message of his incredible grace. You see, what we, what we can observe in this passage in chapter 4 is that the people of God were experiencing the blessings of God pouring out on them as they were of one heart and they were meeting everybody's needs. So physically, their, their needs were being met by the, by the generosity of the people in the community. But, but more than that, the message of Jesus Christ was that God richly pours out his grace on all of us. It says that grace, great grace was upon them all. You see, they, they, they knew and they recognized that you cannot exhaust God's riches. You cannot use up his grace. It is benevolent. It is rich. It is, it is you cannot reach the end of it. It's unending. That's the message of Jesus Christ. That's the message that God was moving and stirring in his people. And so Ananias and Sapphira's sin sought to undermine that and undercut that. It was extremely, extremely, it had the potential to be extremely destructive. Greed, think about that for just a second. Greed is, in, is a situation in which one would say, God, I don't trust you to take care of me. I don't trust you to provide for my family. Therefore, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the situation into my own hands and I'm going to embezzle, lie, steal, hoard, manipulate, cajole, do whatever I can to grab what I feel like I deserve and I'm entitled to, to make sure that I stay comfortable, to make sure that I am uh, taken care of. But in the end, what is it all about? Me me, me. So greed, as, as Paul says in Colossians 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 5, greed is idolatry. Greed is worshiping oneself, placing oneself over God. The other thing that I mentioned about the sin of Ananias and Sapphira is hypocrisy. To say one thing and do another. How many of you guys have ever heard someone say, 
I'm not going to go to church. I don't want to be a part of church because church is full of hypocrites. How many of you guys have ever heard that? I know I have, and it stings, especially being a pastor and being a part of a church. It hurts, but the reality is, is does hypocrisy do much damage to the church, the reputation of God's people? You bet. Does hypocrisy do much damage to, to the reputation of God and his message? Absolutely. Hypocrisy is extremely, extremely damaging. And so this, these sins, greed, hypocrisy, selfishness, were absolutely, abs- had absolute, uh, just this ability to cause all kinds of havoc, to wreak all kinds of damage on this church, this community of people that were committed to each other, unified in one spirit, and had the, the power of the Spirit moving through them. Let's move on to see exactly the depths of this conflict and to understand more about it and to see also how God responds. So in verse 3, Peter is going to respond. And he said this. He's moved prophetically by God's Spirit to respond to Ananias and Sapphira. This is incredible. This is intense. He says this. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. Interestingly, Peter says, dude, it was your property to do with what you wanted to do. You, you had the property, you owned it, you could sell it and give away all the money. You could sell it. The implication is that he could have given part of it and said, hey, you know what, we're just going to give half. Or sell less, sell less acreage. I mean, whatever, it was totally at your disposal to do whatever you wanted to. But because you have completely lied, you have misrepresented the proceeds, this is sin. And he identifies it as sin, but also we all need to recognize what, what else Peter does here is he rightly recognizes who is behind it all. He says, why has Satan filled your heart? Let's go back and think through that whole setting conflict resolution uh, idea and theme. Here it is, Satan, that enemy of God, that serpent of old that is coming in, worming his way into this committed community of believers You see, Satan has always been about attacking God, attacking God's purposes, his plans, his people. Peter, in his epistle, 1 Peter 5, 8, talks about Satan. He says, Satan is a roaming lion seeking whom he may devour. Jesus talks about Satan in John chapter 8. He says he's a liar and a murderer. He also describes his mode of operation. In John 10, 10, he says, Satan, the thief, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. You guys notice in a pattern here? There's nothing really cute or benevolent about Satan. He's, he's evil to the core, and he has nothing more than a desire to, to try to attack God's plans, his purposes, his people. And as we see in the context of Acts, what he's been doing previously, he's been trying to attack the community of believers from the outside, 
basically through persecution, through the, the, the temple guard and through the, um, the Sadducees and others and trying to put Peter and these guys in jail, outside forces. But now we see in this situation with Ananias and Sapphira, Satan levels a whole new attack, trying to do an inside job, quite literally using people from the inside of the church, from the, 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 its very members, to try to attack God's purposes, try to attack his plan, to try to attack his message of grace. So we move on. We see what, how God is going to respond to this. In verse 5, When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. He dies. And great fear come, came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Instant burial. Verse 7 says this, it's crazy to think about the fact that Ananias was the only one in that room at the time. Sapphira was not with him whenever Ananias first laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet. So Sapphira is completely naive to the fact that her husband is dead, let alone already buried in the ground. Three hours go by, and she comes in, not knowing what had happened. Verse 8, Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down and at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. A couple of things that we want to make note of here in this, uh, this incredible scenario and uh, the way that God's moving. First of all, the, the resolution is this. God is going to move quickly and swiftly and severely to protect his people and to preserve his message of grace in this situation. We've, we've identified the in, t- incredible contrast between the community, its unity, its commitment to one another, its commitment to God, and the devious deception that Ananias and Sapphira conspired together to, to try to pull off. We recognize that, that uh, had their deception been successful, had Peter not, by, by, the, by the power of the Spirit, and uh, not been able to identify or recognize that, it would have been, it would have, could have had such devastating effects on the church to have someone come in and, and pull off something so devious. The, interestingly, th- this morning, I got up, made myself a bowl of cereal, and, and as, I, uh, as I poured the corn, uh, what do they call corn checks, in my, in my bowl, and I grabbed the milk, I started to pour and it felt weird, uh, like it wasn't coming at first. And then all of a sudden, whoop, this huge chunk came out of the milk. And, and I'm looking at that and I'm like, oh my gosh, it just expired just yesterday. I can't believe it went bad so fast. Uh, but it was gelatinous. It was not even a liquid form anymore. And, and as you can imagine, that milk is in the bowl with the, the corn checks what am I going to do with the, the corn checks? Am I going to try to like kind of, uh, you know, like kind of uh, move some of those corn checks into another bowl and try to save them? No, I'm going to chunk it all. It's gross. That's, it's gone. The, that nasty milk is on it. 
But much the same way, what God is doing is here is, he is, is he's protecting his people. He's preserving them, the, the message of his unity, of the unity of his church. And so he is not going to allow this to succeed and, and for that rotten stuff to infiltrate his church. Now, let's, let's make a few observations here. One thing I want to I look at is the, that word, at their feet, the apostles' feet. People, what they were doing was they were bringing the proceeds from the sale of the real estate and their land and their, their, their homes and everything, and they're bringing it and they're putting it at the apostles' feet. This is, this is important. This is significant. We want to take note that, that this act of placing those proceeds at their feet was symbolic of the fact that the apostles were God's chosen representatives, his authority on earth, to establish the church and to proclaim his message. And it's critical that, that what they, they were doing, in essence, is they were submitting to that God-given authority by placing those proceeds at their feet. Now, also, they submitted to their authority, but also what would happen was that then the apostles would take those proceeds and they would distribute it for the benefit of the church. They would distribute it for the benefit of the community. Interestingly... Ananias and Sapphira fall at the feet of the apostles. Now, it's involuntary, of course, but nonetheless, they ultimately submitted to the authority of God in the apostles. And and then it goes on to say that, and great fear came upon the whole church. This happened, this occurred for the benefit of, of the church for the benefit of those who heard. And even still today, we are continuing to read these words and we can see the seriousness that God takes about his people, about the character of his people and the purity of his message. Now, why would God move in such a way that is so severe? I mean, embezzlement, Capital punishment, it doesn't seem like the punishment matches the crime in in a sense. But recognize that God is a good God. He is a good father. And he is moving swiftly and severely to protect his people in this moment. Much like what what we would understand in our American culture and our American ways is baby-proofing. Here's the situation. The church is in a very unique life stage. In fact, the word church used there in verse 11, ecclesia, it's the very first time that Luke uses that word in the book of Acts. So here we see that the church is in this infancy, that the church is, is still yet vulnerable and susceptible and needs guarding. It needs additional care and guarding to protect it during this this really unique life stage. To put it in perspective, uh, Stephanie and Ryan Mason. Stephanie is the daughter of Johnny and Cindy Stimson. Johnny's one of our elders. You just saw him uh, pray for us this morning. Uh, they just Stephanie and Ryan just had a baby girl this week. Got to see them over at the med. They had a little precious baby girl named Kennedy Jane, and they're doing great. Uh, they're back in Kingwood at their home. But uh, one thing that I was talking to Stephanie about that they will be doing very soon is they will begin the process of baby-proofing their house and their home for little Kennedy. And they will begin to put 
covers on the outlets. They will begin to cover the sharp corners. They will start to put up the baby gates and mount the, the little latches on the, on the cabinet doors and put the toxic chemicals out of reach from baby Kennedy and all these kinds of things. And they, and they go through this intense process to what? To protect their little girl at her unique life stage when she, as she becomes mobile to protect her and guard her from things that could hurt her and could harm her, could destroy her. That's exactly what God is doing here in this unique life stage of the church, that he is moving to protect his people, to preserve his message, in this unique life stage of the church to, to guard it and to guide it, to preserve it so that it can be established in this time. So that baby-proofing analogy serves to help us to understand why God is moving in that unique way as a loving father. Truly, what his acts were, were loving. He's a good, good father to protect his people, to preserve his message. But a couple of things that I want to bring to, to the surface for us this morning in regards to this setting, this conflict, and even this resolution, that... One of the things that strikes me that I, I'm just drawn to is the, the way that the people were with each other. The incredible community that they experienced and they enjoyed together in uh, this, these passages in chapter 4. Even we see some of that in chapter 2. The way that they were so deeply connected and so deeply concerned for each other. You guys, I want that. I want that here and the, the interesting thing about it is that as the church here in the early church, as it was growing, it, what we know and understand from its stage, even here in chapter 4, was that there were thousands of people already participating in this church. It wasn't just a little small group of 20, 30 people. It was 3,000 plus at this point in time. And in what it says in Acts chapter 2 is that God was continuing to add to its number day by day, those who were being saved. And so what I think about in comparison to the way that this community loved each other, served each other, was committed to each other, I think about Grace Bible Church. I think about even the Creekside campus. And I think about how can we mirror that in our context today? here in our context with this campus. You see, relatively speaking, it's actually relatively easy to be able to connect with each other here at just this campus because on an average Sunday morning, there's only about 300 people in this room, maybe 500 total people in this entire building from 915 to 1215. And so if you think about the, the opportunities that we have, not just to connect and to care for each other deeply, but to truly embed that in our DNA from the beginning. We are just a few weeks into this thing, uh, what we know as Creekside Campus, and we have this wonderful, wonderful opportunity to, to really serve each other, to, to know each other well. I want to challenge us. Do you know each other? Are you getting to know each other? Are you, are you learning more about each other than just their spouse's name, their kids' ages, and their major are you getting to know each other at a deep heart level? Are you spending time in each other's homes, in each other's lives? Are you in a home group? There's a home group table right outside those doors, and, and there's uh, home group leaders that are manning that every Sunday 
that are excited and eager for new couples, new, new singles, new college students to come and join and be a part of their home group. So I want to challenge you to, to take that opportunity to be in each other's lives, to mirror and reflect the kind of commitment and the kind of community that, that these people had in the early church and to bring that to our church that we would care deeply about each other's needs. We would know each other's passions. We would, we would, we would know our struggles would be in each other's lives. So I want to challenge us to do that, but know for sure that as we seek to do that, to, as we seek to, to care deeply for one another and, to, and, to, and to, to continue the bonds of community and commitment with one another, the enemy will attack He's already been at work trying to attack in our church, in, this, in the formation of this campus. And so what we need to do is be ever mindful of his schemes. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 6, it says, put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We need to know and be aware that we will be attacked. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. And his deceptions, Satan's deceptions, are so devious and so subtle. It's, it's very unlikely that he's going to come through in some sort of overt, really over-the-top way. It's more, his, his means and his ways are much more subtle than that. And they typically, typically come through the heart. If you guys notice, the, the word heart is repeated a couple of times throughout this passage. The heart of the believers were, were together in unity. Also, Ananias' heart was filled by Satan to do this, this evil thing. And so you can see that we can be filled by the Spirit of God in our hearts, or we can be fueled by Satan in our hearts. It's going to come through the attitudes, the mindset, the the, the condition of our heart, that we need to be ever vigilant, prayerful for ourselves and for one another, that we know that Satan will try to manipulate, he will try to uh, coerce, he will try to deceive, and he'll go and he'll infiltrate oftentimes through our hearts, our attitudes, our perspective. So in closing... This is, this is my heartbeat. This is what I want for our, our people. The application is this. Let us be a people who are, here's the setting, deeply committed to each other. Here's the conflict. Keenly aware of the opposition. And here's the resolution. With hearts passionate for the Lord. Let us be a people who are committed to one another, realizing and cognizant of the schemes of the devil, and that our hearts would be passionate for the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the opportunity to dig into your word this morning. We thank you for preserving your word for us to be able to see the things that occurred even 2,000 years ago and the ways that you intervened, the ways that you came in to preserve your message of grace, to protect your people to guide and guard your church. Lord, we know that we, you don't work in necessarily that same way and you don't, don't, uh, don't come in in that same way. And, and in some ways, I'm kind of grateful for that. But, but nonetheless, we, we realize and we recognize 
that you're serious about your people and our character. You're serious about your message of grace. And Lord, I pray that we would reflect that. We, I pray that we would reflect this generosity, this authenticity, this selflessness, this commitment to you and to others in our lives, in our hearts, in our church. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.